Welcome to the Corporate Innovation Podcast presented by Singularity University and in collaboration with Singularity U Nordic. My name is Chris Ostergaard. The purpose of this podcast is to go beyond the disrupt or die headlines, get concrete about all the abstract terminology behind innovation, and into the nitty-gritty of how to truly create transformation, growth, and impact by speaking to world-leading doers and thinkers who have a lot of innovation dirt under their nails. I hope the podcast provides value for you and hereby give you the next guest on the Corporate Innovation Podcast. So we're here on the Corporate Innovation Podcast, and I'm here with Ryan Bethencourt. And Ryan, he's the CEO of Wild Earth, company that makes healthy and sustainable plant-based pet foods. We'll talk much more about that. He recently started a new fund called the Sustainable Food Ventures that backs early-stage founders building leading food companies that are plant-based, cell-based, uh, etc. He's an entrepreneur, started several biotech companies. He's co-founded IndieBio, leading global biotech accelerator. He's an investor. He's a faculty of biotech and future food at Singularity University and has a master's in bioscience enterprise from Cambridge University. And we're talking about the transformation of the world's food systems, uh, transformation of behaviors and what impact that will have, not just in food industries, but also beyond that. But first off, uh, thank you so much for joining us here, Ryan. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be with you here. So I just named a, a couple of uh, highlights, if you like, from your CV, right? But it's uh, we'd yeah. love to hear a little bit about your journey and how you ended up where you are and, and, and what happened along the way. Yeah, the, happy to. So so um, I would say like all of those things, It's I know it's a mouthful of things, um, has, has been as a result of me saying yes to things, right? So I have this philosophy where um, it, it's kind of a regret minimization framework that I've I've kind of learned over time. I actually got it from reading about the regrets of the dying, right? So I like to, I always like to go to biology or to, you know, past other people's past experiences Mm -hmm. and then start from the learnings there and move backwards. And so one of my biggest lessons has actually been, you know, reading about people who uh, on their deathbed, what is, what are the common things that people regret? Um, And the common things that they regret are actually the things that they, they don't do. Right. So they don't actually regret the mistakes that they made of things that they did. They regret not taking the risk and, and, and not knowing what would have happened if they'd taken another path. And so, you know, my, my, my life and my career more and more has looked like a regret minimization framework. It's like, okay, should I do this? This is scary. This is risky. I don't know what's going to happen. And then usually when I'm like, I feel that in my mind, it's like, do it. And so, so I'll do it. And, and, and sometimes, you know, it works and sometimes it really doesn't, it blows up in my face. Um, but what I found is that that's really helped me in a lot of the journeys. And so, you know, I started, I started in the world of the realm of biotech. I was fascinated by biotechnology. Um, I think that biotechnology is us, but it's also, you know, it's, it's comparable to alien technology. We hardly understand how a molecule works. Mm. We don't understand how a neuron works. You know, there, there's all these advanced machine learning models. Um, they don't even scratch the surface of, of true intelligence, right? Uh, of true neural networks. I mean, um, you know, being able to see similarities in data patterns, that's cool. And it has transformed our world, but that's just scratching the surface of how a mind or how a neuron works. It, it, it actually doesn't even take the deep complexity of how a neuron can 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 question its environment and adapt to that environment, right? And so we have yet to see the rise of true machine learning or true machine intelligence. Yet, I have no doubt that we will eventually figure it out, probably in combination with uh, models of biological systems. And so, you know, back when I was in in the biotech world, I actually um, I came up through the pharma industry. Um, I've worked both in in Europe and in the U.S. Uh, in the pharma industry, I actually helped uh, develop drugs for cancer therapeutics, Alzheimer's drugs. Um, I became very frustrated because I was I was a, a scientist, business person, um, and I wanted to start biotech companies. And I was told that I couldn't do it because I was too young. Right? I, I wasn't old enough, didn't have enough gray hairs, um, and uh, and it was very frustrating to me because I, I had friends who were in the technology world and they were starting companies, you know, at, at any age, and so. Um, 
you know, I had actually already moved. I was in Europe in the well, actually in the UK and London, still in Europe, I, I believe, until at least the end of the year. Yeah. Um, well, it depends on who you ask. <laughs> depends on who you ask. Yeah. I, I know there's this ancient, you know, is Europe is is the UK in Europe or not? And that's a question that's thousands of years old. So, 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 so um, uh, I'd moved to California. Um, the Great Recession had hit, and um, I wanted to help scientists become entrepreneurs because I was a frustrated entrepreneur. I was a failed scientific entrepreneur. And uh, I started Berkeley Biolabs, which is a biotech incubator, um, helped a few companies get off the ground. Then myself and my co-founders, uh, we were backed by Sean O'Sullivan, the SOS and SOSB, to start the Bio. Um, and um, that, that really was a turning point for me personally, and I think for... For, um, for, for biotech entrepreneurship, we at scale, before I left, we had funded 80 biotech companies um, in a period of less than four years. And so I think now IndieBio has funded probably about 150 uh, biotech companies from across the world. You know, we literally were, were, were taking founders who were looking for, for money, typically scientists who were frustrated, couldn't get grants. Mm. Um, and we told them there's another path that we can find a way to make money with this technology. And we unleashed just incredible innovation. My thesis was that uh, biology and biotechnology is so deep that innovation in just one small part will unleash massive innovation. So one example, which is less well known, is catalog technologies. They store digital data in DNA. That company's doing very well now based in Boston. We're the first investors in that company. Uh, one of the ones that's very topical to us in our conversation is Memphis Meats. It was the first true cell-based meat company, mm. uh, which was shortly followed by, by Mosa Meats. A couple months later, Mosa Meats launched in Europe uh, with Mark Post. And, you know, it really catalyzed an entire industry. We went from one uh, cell-based meat company, which everyone told me was science fiction, would never work, uh, told Uma, the founder, and Nick, and, and, and the various other founders at uh, Memphis, never work, never work. Uh, but the science was sound. And now it's an entire industry, right? We're probably over 50 cell-based companies today. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see 300 in the next, you know, one or two years. Mm. Um, and so that, that started my journey. And so what I started to realize was that um, the vision in my mind's eye around biotechnology transforming everything in our world um, was there. And actually now that we can meld it with biotech plus technology, uh, our computers, our machines enable us to do more of their tools. And so it enables us to understand the natural world better, which means we can take understandings of the natural world and apply them to technology. And so um, that's accelerated. Today, um, I've co-founded Wild Earth. We are a, now, for, I took it from an idea for sustainable, healthy, clean food uh, to a now international company. We're a commercial stage international company. We sell across the U.S. and every major city in the U.S. Direct consumer, you can find us at wildearth.com um, to now having launched in India. Currently, we're the best-selling dog food in India on Heads Up for Tails, our partner, mm -hmm. um, which is honestly unexpected um, in, a, in a market with 1.4 billion people. We're really excited. We're actually a little bit scared because it means we may have to, to build at the same time we're scaling up in the U.S. We may right. have to build in India as well because the Indian market actually might be larger than the U.S. market. Mm -hmm. um, and, so, and, then, and then since then, I have personally been cutting angel checks. Uh, we just started a new fund called Sustainable Food Ventures, uh, which actually is on the AngelList platform. And that, that is uh, a new innovation that we're rolling out. I talked to the AngelList team. Um, we're the first future of food sustainable fund on AngelList as the rolling fund. Um, the aim for that rolling fund is that it allows anyone uh, to invest $5,000 or more. Um, and, and it basically is, is an attempt to democratize access to these early stage deals, these companies that I was personally cutting a small check into um, and other people weren't able to cut uh, a big enough check to get in. Now they can join myself and Marillis, my partner uh, at Sustainable Food Ventures. Uh, they can join us as we cut those first checks or those very early checks for these global entrepreneurs. And so now my remit has moved from backing, uh, backing uh, entrepreneurs in the future of food space, particularly, but some biotech entrepreneurs too, in the Bay Area, in the San Francisco Bay Area, to now globally. Mm. So my latest checks I've personally cut have been to uh, Mzanzi Meats, which is Africa's first uh, clean meat company, um, Veggie Victory, which is Nigeria's first uh, plant-based meat company. You know, I'm, I'm looking at innovation from a very global perspective, and particularly around the Nordics, 
Marilis is actually from uh, Estonia, and she is very passionate about the Nordics and the innovation, the plant-based innovation that we can bring forward in the Nordics as well. And so she's 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 you know our go-to person for the Nordics. She understands the Nordics very well, loves the Nordics, um, and so wants to kind of support entrepreneurs, future food entrepreneurs throughout the Nordics as well. Yeah, that's kind of a little overview. Yeah, thank you, and and we'll talk more about also uh, some of the companies and and uh, that you're most excited about uh, around the world, uh, and also some of the bigger trends. But but first off, just to get a proper understanding of Wild Earth, so it's it's sustainable plant based pet food, right? Yes. And uh, yes. so so what was the um, motivator here to uh, to start that company? Uh, what what kicked you off? So so, so I, I was a long time animal lover. I was I was. At IndieBio, uh, you know, very frustrated with what I was feeding uh, my my pets and my animals over the years. I, I was like, I don't think the food's good. And then the more I started to question it, the more I was like, well, why couldn't like why don't we have a Beyond Meat or an Impossible Foods or Memphis Meats of pet food? Mm. Why doesn't that exist? And, and I started to question, and I started to get the same feeling that I had when we started IndieBio. Was like, it just doesn't exist because it doesn't exist yet. Um, and so th- that's the feeling. I think sometimes when you walk out as an entrepreneur, you walk out into this, this emptiness mm. and it's like, there must be a reason why this doesn't exist. There must be a reason why I'm wrong and this will fail. And sometimes the answer is just, it just doesn't right now. And so I actually tried to give the idea away. I was an investor, an accidental investor. I'm really an entrepreneur. Um, I became an accidental investor through Nibio and it turned out pretty well. And so I, I was kind of hesitant to leave being an investor Um, but after about a year of really thinking about the concept, I was like, we need a clean, high quality protein source for our pets. The more I looked into it, the more I realized how much of an issue it actually was. So, um, you know, starting with health, um, in the U S in particular, dogs foods have had serious health, uh, serious safety problems. Mm -hmm. So, um, there's been euthanized animals put into their food. Uh, the contaminated meat, basically. And these dogs and cats have eaten it and gotten sick and died, right? I mean, it's unbelievable. It is um, an unsafe food supply for our pets. Um, there's actually been millions of recalls because of euthanasia drug being found in their food. Salmonella, um, plastic, so melted plastic, things like that. So really things that you would never imagine getting into human food, get into our pets' food. Mm. So from a, a food safety, I was like, I don't trust the majority of the brands out there. Um, and, and so we can make something better. And at the time I was thinking, how do we make it high protein? And we actually brought in fungi. So we brought in yeast as a high protein source plus plants. And then separately from a sustainability perspective, you know, I, I you know, I, I care deeply about our planet. I care deeply about, you know, hopefully having a better planet when we hand it over to the next generation than when we, when we got it ourselves. And, um, We were not on track for that in pet food. Everyone had forgotten pet food. Mm-hmm. And in the U.S., pets account for between 25 to 30% of the meat we consume today. In the U.S. alone, right? It's somewhat similar in Europe. It's a little lower in Europe, but it's somewhat similar. Um, and so 25 to 30%. That means about 30% of the factory farms, the, the output of factory farms goes to our pets. That means 30% of the pollution, the destruction of land, The, you know, the, the methane, the CO2, the emissions come from our pets because they eat meat twice a day and they eat meat in the kibble format. They don't need to. This is just a protein source. And, uh, and so I was like, I could make a huge impact and I'm betting I can make a bigger impact than even beyond and impossible foods have been able to make because this is not, uh, you know, a burger every once in a while. This is, this is literally replacing their primary food source forever, right? For their entire lives. Um, and, you know, re- reductions of, we have rough estimate, re- reductions of 90% in terms of emissions, reductions of 90% in terms of water usage, land usage for our products. Um, and so, you know, it was just like, this is something that I've got to do. It's a mission. Um, a lot of people said I was crazy making a dog food company. Like, who am I to make a dog food company? I'm a biotech entrepreneur, future food entrepreneur, investor, um, I'm not a dog food person. Um, and so I had to learn mm. and made many mistakes along the way, but that, that's our mission, right? Our mission is to take the latest in scientific nutrition, combine that with food safety and sustainability and make the best, healthiest, most sustainable dog food on the planet. And and that, that is our mission. And I'm unabashed about that in the sense that 
I'm super proud of the work that we've done as a team. We, we've launched in the U.S. We've commercialized this idea, and and now we have very vocal, uh, proud pet parents who support Wild Earth on our mission as well as our products as well. Yeah. So um, I mean, I wasn't aware of those numbers. They're staggering. 25 to 30 percent of uh, of meats are actually being used for for pet consumption. How much of that is uh, is for dogs? Do you know that? Yeah, it's it's about it, it's a little more dogs because dogs are bigger, so it's it's probably you know sixty forty, maybe a little larger for for dogs. Yeah. Um, what, what's even like so? What's even more staggering is that those are those are the numbers today. Mm. It doesn't account for the fact that we have massive growth. So so the U.S. and Europe are, are pretty mature in terms of pet ownership. You know, we we have typically depending on Europe or U.S. we have somewhere between fifty to seventy percent pet ownership, right? So. Um, Some European countries have 50%. Uh, some are very similar to the U.S. that has 70%. Um, in, in my neighborhood here in Research Triangle Park in North Carolina, literally everyone, everyone on the street has one or two dogs, mm. usually two, by the way. Um, and and that's normal. But in, in emerging economies, um, you know, large emerging economies like India and China, the growth in pet ownership is 20% year on year. Mm. So China is on course to, within the next year or two, overtake the U.S. in terms of total number of pet dogs and cats, right? Uh, say in India, a little further behind, but it's on its way. And so the reality of it is we're going to have another billion mouths to feed um, that are primarily meat-based mouths, so so they require meat. Um, where are we going to find that meat? It's not coming from, we can't grow, we can't burn down more of the Amazon. We can't, we can't grow more soy fields to feed the cattle That basically are you know used to feed the factory farmed animal, used to feed the factory farmed animal, right? So it, it, it's 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 not going to happen. And the, the problem is, no one's talking about next 20 years. How are we going to feed the next billion yeah. uh, dogs and cats that are not coming primarily from the U.S. and Europe? They're coming from India and China. And it's it, you know humans have a connection with animals, and it's it's right that they want to have dogs. They want they want to have cats. Um, my mission is to make it so that. It, it's a much lighter environmental footprint for all of us, mm -hmm. right? While we have our, 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 our pets, you might see my dog Liza. She'll 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 walk around usually when I'm, when I'm doing these, these dogs. Yeah, I would even guess, and I don't know if you if you have statistics on that that like the pandemic that we're experiencing now would also you know accelerate growth in pet ownership given that we're so much more at home and and, and focus so much more on that environment not being able to go out 100 100% yeah i mean we we actually uh, we've seen it in terms of our growth rate we continue to grow we're one of the fastest growing um uh, healthy dog food companies in the US um we um We, we've we've seen it in Chewy.com's um, financing financial reports. They've they've grown dramatically, mm. and we've also seen it in the shelters, which is something I'm really happy about. The shelters are basically empty, right? They, yeah. the, the dogs and cats have been adopted, um, which was a huge problem in the U.S. because we we're just overflowing with animals. Mm. Um, unfortunately, it started to come back. The, the, the glut of pets in shelters, and unfortunately, they get cut down. You know, our mission is that. It's hard to adopt a dog because there, there's so much demand, right? Like that's our vision, and so that you know, no animal has to be euthanized in, in the shelter because no one, no one wants to look after them, no one wants to care for them. Mm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, there's huge, huge demand across Europe and and the US. Yeah. For, for so, so uh, perhaps surprisingly large uh, or, or big importance uh, the you know pet industry and and production of food for pets and and when we talk about food uh, in general and and the transformations happening in, in the world here and I'm, I'm guessing that most people experience that in in one way or another but sort of just to set the scene properly here why is transformation within uh, production and uh, the whole supply chain, I guess, and behaviors around food so important and what are the important shifts that we're seeing? Yeah, so so to get more of meta, right, to kind of pull out of just the pet food space. So, I've, you know, I've been involved with investing in and in, in helping and building over 120 uh, biotech and future food companies. So everything from therapeutics all the way through to, you know, uh, cell-based, plant-based, recombinant food companies. Um There, there is a huge problem coming. So we have to feed the next, you know, the next three billion people over the next three decades, right? By 2050, we're going to have roughly another three billion people on the planet. Um, there isn't enough land to to grow enough crops. We cannot keep 
the existing technology that we use, the, you know, basically the farming technologies that we currently use are insufficient to feed these next 3 billion people. And so we have to innovate. We always have as humanity, right? Our ancestors 10,000 years ago created uh, modern farming, right? They domesticated plants and animals, created modern farming. We forget that food is a technology sometimes. And I think we are re-remembering that food is a technology. So now that biotechnology and technology can be applied to food, so vertical farms, from you know, bioreactors, that's on the tech side. On the biotech side, that's engineered or GMO, uh, bacteria, uh, fungi, plant cells, animal cells. Like we are now moving from the first domestication to the second domestication, which is moving away from domesticating the bodies of animals and plants to their cells themselves. So we no longer need the sentient animal. Um, anymore. And that's just a more efficient platform as well, right? You know, we, we see improvements about 90% efficiency. So if you take the world's food production system, improve it by 90%, um, you, you can easily uh, provide food and, and nourishment for everyone that's going to be on this planet without destroying the planet in the process. And, uh, and 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 there are a number of different sort of endeavors here, right? So one is uh, GMOs that you know, particularly in Europe, have a really bad rep. So I'm curious to, to learn your uh, opinion on that. Uh, then there's the you know uh, cell-based uh, meats and, and plants uh, and cultivation like that. Uh, other ways to to produce plant-based and uh, there's the whole uh, organic movement that is uh, you know some worship it some say it's never ever gonna be the solution so what's the sort of ups and downs here in in those different categories yeah i would i would say that you know my focus is not on you know how are the rich gonna eat right so i think organic not organic non-gmo sure you can do that if you're really wealthy in europe if you're really wealthy in the u.s you can you can select and you can say hey i want it the way my ancestors ate it right which by the way is still new it's just you know, if a couple generations new, right? 10,000 years new. Um, and so, so, um, but that's not my personal focus. Like I, I, I think that that is, um, that is a status symbol, right? It really makes very little difference from the perspective of nutrition, right? We've seen from the trillion meal study that GMO organic, it doesn't make a difference from a health perspective, but people like the branding and they like, they like that it's from local farms and it's not natural and organic and non-GMO. It's fine, but that's not going to feed the vast majority of humanity. So it it's doesn't not, scale. It's not, yeah, it doesn't scale. And <clears throat> people forget that, you know, what we are doing with agriculture is not natural, right? So, mm. you know, uh, corn is not non-GMO corn is not natural, Right. Uh, non-GMO wheat is not natural. Non-GMO soy is not natural. Our ancestors selectively bred those crops. And the problem when you're growing a bunch of clones on a field um, is that nature adapts. And so all of a sudden you have insects that, you know, they'll, they'll just like locusts will sweep through a field and eat everything because there's nothing stopping them from eating, eating all the crops. And so we need, we are in a evolutionary race against, you know, the pests that will destroy these crops. And so this is why GMOs are so important. We need them. Like the, the fungi that are currently destro destroying the, um, the banana trees in Africa. This is a huge problem. And, you know, Africa in the past, unfortunately, due to interference from both U.S. and European nonprofits, wanted to reject GMOs and did. But the problem that's happening now is that, you know, crops are failing for subsistence farmers, people who rely literally on their, their lives and livelihoods and their families' livelihoods on, on crops, banana plants that are being infected by fungi that are dying. And so, you know, they, they need GMO products. And so now Af even Africa is now opening up to GMO products because they realize that that is the only way to ensure food security for their people. Um, unfortunately, Europe is still, um, I would say, resisting. The politicians are resisting. I've actually had a I had an argument once at IndyBio with a French politician about four or five years ago. He came and said, oh, yes, we don't do any of this. We don't do any of this GMO stuff. And I was like, yes, you do. And he said, no, in France, no, 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 in France, we don't do any GMOs. That's the way we don't. And I was like, um, all of your vegetarian cheeses are products of GMOs. And he was like, what? And I was like, the, you know, the rennet that they put in their cheese is made either in a bacterial or a fungi. They basically take the gene from a cow's stomach um, put that into a bacteria fungi, 
um, and then brew it like you brew beer and then they put the enzyme into it. Uh, and actually one of, one of, uh, Denmark's largest companies called Novazymes, that is their specialty, mm-hmm. right? Like they, they make all types of enzymes and food colorings and various other things to put into products. And those are GMOs, right? Those are products of GMOs. And he was very upset. He's like, well, that's different. Your cheese is different. And blah, blah, blah. And, and I was like, no, it's not different. It's you, you have, you have millions of diabetics in France. How are they surviving day to day with their insulin? That is GMO. They're literally injecting it into their veins. That is, to me, that is that is a sign of the safety of biotechnology, right? Um, you know, I, I just, I, I'm very, so so. what kind of blows people's minds is that I personally, I'm plant-based, but I'm pro-GMO, right? Because I think that that is the way to make sustainable ethical products uh, for today's market. And so I've had a lot of resistance, including from some of our customers at Wild Earth who were like, I, you know, I'm plant-based or I'm vegan and you shouldn't be using GMOs. You should have organic, natural, non-GMO. Like, I disagree. Like, I totally disagree. I think that there is no difference. And in fact, there is a cost difference and an efficiency difference, which I think is is actually negative to the environment uh, with some of these products. And so it, it it's hard for people to process that perspective yeah. sometimes because... They typically go together, right? Vegan, natural, non-GMO, or right. organic. Yeah, right? so there's, there's there's a clear branding problem, right? And, and of course, it's also problem. complicated uh, if you're a lay person to really be able to decipher what is what here. But a typical yeah. argument would be that you know it's an experiment that we're conducting on nature. That if something goes wrong, we have no way of controlling it. But what's your typical response to that? This episode is presented in partnership with Singularity University. If the future you've been planning for arrived today, would your organization be prepared? If your answer is anything other than a resounding yes, you might be in danger of falling behind your competition. In the race of innovation, your success depends on your ability to adapt and start thinking and acting exponentially. Singularity University can help you develop a future-focused mindset and toolset and connect you to a global community of changemakers just like you. Come explore the future of exponential technologies, learn how other organizations are adapting to change, and build a strategy that keeps your organization at the top of your game, no matter what the future brings. Take charge of your future. Visit su.org CIP to learn more. Uh, my typical response to that is, um, you know, we, we have the data, right? So when people say there's no data, it's like there, there's a trillion meal study. I mean, we've been using GMOs for the last 20 years. Like it's, if something bad was going to happen with the currently approved GMOs, I'm not talking about if you put like scorpion venom into a plant and then eat it, you'll probably die. Um, you know, it's kind of a common sense thing. But if we were looking for small things, um, we would have we would have seen it the scale at which we are currently consuming. We humanity are currently consuming uh, genetically modified uh, uh, plants. Um, It, it, we would have seen something in the trillion, the trillion meal study was a, a retrospective analysis of all of the data around the safety of GMO products, food products versus non-GMO food products. It found no difference. And so to me, I'm data driven. And so I know that sometimes, you know, when we hear, you know, uh, dietitians or, you know, even sometimes doctors who are like, oh, organic is better, non-GMO is better. We tend to take those authority figures and say, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, that's what they're saying. Or celebrities say that. Um, the data just doesn't match that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, look, there, there's a bunch of, unfortunately, we live in the age of misinformation. Um, and, and it's misinformation is not, it's not the problem of food alone, right? We look at politics. I live in the U.S. Misinformation happens all the time now. You know, literally a politician will say something. I won't get into specifics about which politicians, but a politician will say something is, factually untrue and a good proportion of the population will believe it. Right. Um, mm. I'll take one example, uh, bleach for, for coronavirus. Right. If anyone drinks bleach for coronavirus, they, they will die. Do not drink bleach. Uh, but you know, but a president said, Oh, bleach is good for coronavirus. And it's like, you know, these, these types of misinformation, that's something that we need to be very like uh, upfront about and say, look, this is just not true. Mm. Um, the data backs the safety of GMO food products. Mm. If someone wants to argue with that, that's fine. And and in fact, you know, I tell people who argue with me, we, we don't have any GMOs within Wild Earth, our, our dog food, but we see nothing wrong with GMOs. Mm. And we don't, we have no hesitation to using GMOs in the future. And we've lost a few customers for that. I've literally, they've said, I will never use you because 
your product is full of GMOs. I'm like, first of all, no, it's not. But second of all, there's nothing wrong with GMOs, mm. even if we had them, right? And and we lose customers, and I'm willing to lose customers because as a company, right, it's important that companies stick up for their values, right? I st- you know, Wilder stands for health and sustainability. And so I'm sticking up for the value of sustainability for Wilder and for health. Mm. Um, and we'll lose those customers because they're not our customers. They're going to go and they're going to they're going to feed their 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 dogs, you know, organic non-GMO products, and, and pay a premium for it. And it literally makes no difference. Just a branding and marketing thing. Mm. And, and and so when when looking at uh, the big picture perspective here, so one is there's three billion more people coming up that needs food. There's plenty of people around that you know uh, don't get the right nourishment and, and and don't eat enough. There's the environmental impact in, in multiple ways of the way that we produce uh, foods. What what do you see are the most important contributions moving forward? I mean the 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 new plant based the uh, the Memphis Impossible Foods types of companies, the 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 cell lab based uh, f- uh, meats. Uh, uh, third uh, CS, I don't know. I mean, what, what do you see? Uh, who's contributing what here? Uh, also yeah. looking a little bit into the future. Yeah, so so I, I, I tend to go to the future and then look backwards, right? Yeah. So, you know, we're in 2020. I'll, I'll go to 2030 in my mind mm-hmm. and go, we're in 2030. Yeah. What does what does, what does does food look like today, yeah. right? And I look at it and it's, it's a diverse variety of food technologies. And so I think that, you know, coming back to today, We've seen the rise of, you know, plant-based unicorns. So Beyond Meat, Oatly, right, which is obviously, you know, uh, a Nordic champion, right, in terms of plant-based uh, milk and dairy alternatives with oats. Um, you know, we're going to see many, many more of those. I mean, we're going to see hundreds of successful plant-based companies. So the same boom we saw in dot-com companies or tech companies, we're going to see that in food across multiple different platforms. You know, whether they're plant-based, which is really the first wave, we're starting to see the second wave of, of recombinant or, you know, nature identical proteins. So like the perfect days of the world that have just launched a product, uh, 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 I guess an animal free dairy product called Brave Robot. Um, I haven't yet been able to taste it, but I've heard it's super delicious. Mm-hmm. Um, Clara Foods, which is launching, you know, the egg whites, you know, nature identical egg whites without the chickens. Um, and so Impossible Foods, which is currently on the market right now, which actually has a, a GMO heme. Um, and so the heme is what gives it that blood-like taste. Um, and so like all these products are, are either in the case of uh, impossible here or coming and scaling. And then there's the next generation, which is not yet commercial, which is the cell-based technologies, right? And so cell-based can mean so much. Um, it is real meat, not fake meat. Um, it is. So I think this is the, this is the technology that will be transformational for us. So there will be a good chunk of the population that's open to, you know, plant-based and recombinant. 50% of the population is going to be like, hey, it tastes good, um, it's healthier, it's more sustainable, that's good for me. But maybe the other 50% is like, it's not real meat, I want real meat, I, that's, I need real meat. Um, cell-based technology is going to answer that for us. And so, you know, there might be some holdouts, you know, 5 to 10% of people that are like, I only want it the authentic slaughtered way, and I want to go to a farm and I want to slaughter my cow myself and I want to, you know, okay, that's, that's, that's that small population, but the people who go and they eat out and they just want something good and clean and healthy, they're not going to have a problem with it. So I think it's, it's various different technological ways. You know, I, I know this is an SU, you know, podcast and an innovation podcast. These are exponential technologies and each one has its own, its own S curves, right? And so as we go forward into the, into the next 10 years, all of these technologies will be commercial. All of them will be scaled. So what does that look like? It's a bunch of S, S curves, technological S curves. And then where it gets even more interesting is what's the innovation that comes afterward, right? If food is a technology, it never ends. So that means we'll see second, third, fourth, fifth, tenth generation future of food technologies we can't even imagine right now, right? So, you know, better for you, right? Like which milks look after your gut health? Which, which plant-based milks make you live longer? Which GMO uh, foods, which GMO burgers have, have, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, metformin or rapamycin engineered to literally make you live longer the more you eat of it, right? So like we haven't yet explored these future of food boundaries. And so it's coming. 
Mm. And so it's going to be super interesting over the next decade. Yeah, uh, incredibly interesting. So the the 2030 person uh, of the world here, uh, maybe in developed and emerging countries, I imagine there might be some differences. But but you know, what's what's that life like when uh, we have access to whole different uh, types uh, of food in terms of health, in terms of impact on the environment, etc. You think? Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm just thinking like all the new technologies that are coming, and so. Um, I've looked at the, the the history of pandemics, right? So I'm sure you, you've kind of looked into this as well, Chris. Um, pandemics are terrible, but then they also accelerate societies and cultures. And so the trends that already exist within societies and cultures typically get accelerated for better or for worse, yeah. right? So, um, but but in Europe in particular, the plague was um, linked to to the start of, of 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 the age of enlightenment, of the Renaissance, right? And so. That's really interesting, but we've seen the same thing happen in the Spanish flu in the U.S. We've seen the same thing happen in SARS uh, in China, the first SARS outbreak, um, and, and and we've seen that it accelerates. You know, for China, SARS accelerated the rise of e-commerce because people had to be socially distant. It accelerated the rise of payless payments, like cashless payments. Um, it was when Alibaba and JD.com became these huge companies. Mm. They were outdated when SARS first hit. These were these were really not advanced companies, and so SARS in really created a base for technology to accelerate in China. I think the same thing's going to happen for us globally, actually. And so um, we will see huge breakthroughs in terms of future food and biotechnology. Um, there are some breakthroughs that I'm tracking, obviously around you know electric cars and solar panels and um, fusion energy, right? Not fission, but fusion energy. Um, quantum computers. And so when I think in 10 years time, I'm like, I have no idea. People will, will not be eating food that comes from slaughterhouses. I think they'll look at it as something really gross then um, in the same way that we adapt, you know, when, when we got our, when we first got our cell phones, right? Like it, we called them cell phones. Now we just call them our phone. Um, and, and the landline is now, you know, the old technology is called something to describe that old technology, right? Oh, you have a landline. It's like, Someone from the past, it's like, yeah, let me, let me, let me press the buttons. What's your number? I'll call you. It's almost yeah, like an experience like, you could charge for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's it's it literally it's it's yeah, it's like vintage, right? Like I, I've actually seen some of those old vintage phones where you can still turn the little little round dials. Um, it's a vintage experience, and so I think that when people look back at like slaughtered animals for food, people will look back at it and go, oh, that's okay. You know, it's like it's like someone who has a you know. A landline. It's like, yeah, that's like a thing that they like to do. It's like a, you know, a vintage thing that they yeah. do. But it's most people won't be doing that. And um, thinking about that with a 10 year timeline, in my interpretation, that is like very soon, right? So where, where are the incumbents of the world here? I mean, uh, also speaking from, you know, national and, and uh, even uh, beyond national levels uh, in the EU, I'm sure it's similar in the US, you know, farming in various ways is heavily subsidized, right? Plus we have these huge big uh, companies as well. So, so much interest here. Where, where are the these uh, large, big uh, food corporations in terms of all of this innovation, are they driving it? Are they partnering? Uh, will they be Some are partnering. Almost all of them are laggards, right? All the large ones, right? The, the, the Mars, the Nestle, the Tysons, the Cargills, they're all kind of lagging. They're, they're following it, but they're, they're moving slow, right? Um, probably about 50% of them are going to be dead in 10 years, right? Like they will be gone. They'll be extinct. They will have gone bankrupt. We've seen that in the U S with Dean foods, the largest dairy producer in the U S um, they went bankrupt last year, yeah. bankrupt, the largest dairy producer in the U S gone bankrupt. Um, they didn't adapt. They didn't adapt to new technologies. We've seen this with te- technological innovation, technological disruption, the companies that don't adapt go extinct. Mm-hmm. And what happens is business is going great until suddenly it just dives. Right. Like that's, that's why these companies die so quickly because everything is fine until it's not. And then, and then, and then, and then, and then they just plunge um, and it catches them by surprise, right? Like these, these are companies are run by really either good or great managers, but the good or great managers, they don't adapt. And so uh, some companies will though. So, so there's one example in Europe actually of a company that's been phenomenal has adapted Incredibly, I mean, like literally, they were probably a poster child for adaption. That's Vivera, 
Are, are you familiar with Rivera? Where, where, which country are they from? Uh, I think it's from, I think it's from the, I think they're from the Netherlands. Uh-huh. I think. And um, and Vivera, they were a meat company. So they were a meat company. They dropped, they sold all their meat assets and became a plant-based meat company. Right. Incredible. Like the most nimble, uh, it's just incredible leadership, incredible everything, vision. Mm-hmm. Um, they were like, okay, we're going to be disrupted. Goodbye legacy stuff. Hello future. And they have really expanded aggressively throughout Europe and the U.S., um, the, the CEO, I saw one of his interviews and he was like, we're going to launch like 20 new products. Like I think it was either every year or every month, some, something super aggressive. I've never seen because he, he has the resources, right? Mm-hmm. He, once upon a time, they were a meat company. They realized that actually what they do is they serve the consumer. And if the consumer wants to shift, they're going to follow the consumer. Um, and so they just dropped their legacy business and that's it. And so I think we will see the rise of those companies, but we'll also see the rise of the Beyond Meats, right? The companies that are built on the new demand from consumers and the new technologies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so those will be the companies of the future. And so when we look at these like, like legacy uh, food companies, some of them will not survive. Um, I, I think some will, like, you know, the Mars and the Nestle's of the world, uh, they, they're talking, they're saying the right things. They're, they're, they're going to adapt, um, they're just they're just being a little bit slow about it, but they're going to adapt. Um, but you know, you know, will will JBS in Brazil that makes you know basically makes beef and supplies McDonald's uh, will they adapt? I don't know. They they might actually they might fight to stay like we make meat from real animals, and they might fight that fight until. One day something hits and that's it. They're gone. And I've, I've, when you when you gave the example of you know shifting completely from meat to to plant based, it got me thinking about you know energy companies and the shifts that we're seeing all over the world and have been in the last five years or so from uh, fossil fuels obviously to uh, to clean energy, right? And and, and that whole uh, transformation there, which is. Um, you know, remarkable, really. If if we will see a, a, a wave like that, uh, is is that within your ten year time horizon as well? You think? Hundred percent. Mm-hmm. It's funny that you should mention energy. So clean energy is literally, you know, about cost curves. It's about when things disruption happens. And so, so Tony Seva at Rethink X. I don't know if you are you familiar with Tony Seva mm-hmm. and Rethink X. Uh, yeah, but uh, please, for our listeners... Uh, please, on, on, on the energy side, context, right? So yeah. he and his team were able to um, uh, correctly predict when the cost curves would hit at the right point where we would see the rise of electric cars, we would yeah. see the rise of clean energy, you know, due to the cost of solar panels and wind. Um, and uh, his project after that, which was a couple of years now, I think it was about two years ago, was um, disrupting the cow. So he really felt that the, the rise in clean energy, we're going to see something very similar to, to clean food, right? To clean and sustainable food. And so he was really excited about plant-based, recombinant, and cell-based. And so he wrote a free report. It's available on the Rethink website called Disrupting the Cow. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend for every, everyone that's listening and, and watching to go and, and download it and check it out. He predicts by 2030, effectively, most uh, major dairy and cattle producers will be effectively bankrupt, mm-hmm. right? So, so it's, you know, someone who correctly predicted the rise of clean energy and clean, clean automobiles, you know, uh, electric cars, um, is also predicting the rise of, of clean food, uh, cell-based, plant-based and recombinant over the next 10 years. And so by, by 2030, effectively bankrupt, by 2035, we're looking at the vintage moment, right? Where people who, who go to a farm and get a slaughtered animal, it's like a vintage thing. It's like, okay, you want that for the real authentic experience that our ancestors had, right? Right. That, That's really the only, it's like, like going into the woods and hunting and killing an animal and eating it. It's like, yeah, you could do it. Most people in the world will not like the 0.001% will do that, but okay. You know, whatever. It's, it's part of the experience economy then, right? Yeah. yeah. It's part of the experience economy. You want to get out there and be in the woods and then mm. like, you know, hunt and kill uh, like our ants. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's a thing. It's an experience, right? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. fascinating. Well, what do you see then uh, looking beyond, you know, f- the food companies of the world and, and, and farmers, obviously, the, the non-related, non-food related companies? What, what are the implications here? Uh, so, so one of the things that is often not talked about, which I'm incredibly excited about, is what does what do these advances in our understanding of biology, especially the clean meat, mean for us, right? If we can start to grow... 
uh, bacon and chicken breasts and structured structured tissues. Mm. What does that mean? And so for me, I actually think that it is going to lead to incredible innovations in biomaterials. So imagine being able to grow, you know, massive structures made out of living tissue, right? Whether that's fungal, plant-based, animal-based, you know, um, <laughs> crazy ideas like like desks made out of bone, right? Like mm-hmm. things that you could grow. Um, th- these are industries that don't exist today, but yeah. will, because um, biology has so many incredible biomaterials. And then separately, um, there is a place where we can use tissue engineering today and we have desperate need for it, which is our own bodies. Mm. And so, you know, we have a shortage of, of organ donors and organ transplants. Imagine if we could grow a heart, a lung, a liver, a pancreas. About when I was at XPRIZE, uh, I headed up life sciences at XPRIZE. Um, about 50% of the reasons why we die is because something malfunctions within one of our organs, right? And so, um, you know, you could have cancer in your pancreas, but you need your pancreas, so you can't pull your pancreas out. Um, but what if you could regrow an entire pancreas? What if you could regrow an entire heart? What if, so when something starts to fail, whether that is, you know, uh, functional failure, which happens in hearts as we get older, or whether that's, you know, let's say you, you have a, a mass, a tumor mass or something, you could pull that malfunctioning organ out and replace it with a functioning organ that is made from your own tissues where you're not going to have rejection. It changes everything about medicine, about human life. And so I think that's the direction that we're going in. And so maybe in a decade, um, these parallel innovations, because there are people that are going to be innovating on the future of food, but there, you know, there is literally tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars going into human uh, medical innovation. Mm. Um, we're going to see the rise of entirely new industries that will serve human health. And many, many of the innovations we see from the cell-based space will assist the innovations that we're going to see from the, the human food space. Yeah. Fascinating. And uh, and you mentioned growing a, a table out of bones, I, I suppose. So, you know, uh, interior design, but then the entire fashion industry, I'm imagining they must be pouring a lot of money or should be pouring a lot of money into this space as well. They, they are. And actually, uh, a fellow, so a, a, a Dane, uh-huh. uh, Ingvar, he created a company. I don't know if you've heard of them, uh, Vitro Labs. Have you heard of a company called Vitro Labs? Yeah. You have so, but, but please tell a little bit for for your yeah. So 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 Ingvar and his team, Vitro Labs, they're actually currently based in the Bay Area, um, uh, but originally he, uh, Ingvar is Danish, um, and so uh, Ingvar has created a company that actually grows leather. Mm. So they they grow not fake leather; it's it's leather from uh, animal cells, and they grow exotics as well. So like imagine replacing the crocodile, the ostrich, you know, the obviously the cow leather as well. Mm. Um, The, he's t- he's been talking to many fashion brands. Many are super interested in beautiful uh, exotic leathers that you don't have to actually kill exotic animals for. Yeah. And so the fashion industry, I think, will actually be one of the early beneficiaries of this technology. I don't know if Ingvar is publicly released when he's coming out with his his products, uh, so I won't share it for him. Mm-hmm. But let's just say it's very very fast. Yeah. Those technologies and those products can come out even faster than cell based meats. Yeah, and so 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 we are going to see a transformation uh, in in the fashion industry with these new um, uh, cell based uh, technologies. You know, Vitro Labs is really a leader, but then we also have other companies like Microworks or Bolt Threads that are actually making mycelium leather, mm. uh, mushroom based leather, and so we're going to just see a proliferation of alternatives as well. In the in the fashion space, yeah, and uh, and then of course there's us lucky people who live in rich parts of the world and are doing well, and then there's you know billions of other people with many more challenges. So, how are they going to benefit from all of this technological development? You think? Yeah, so I I, I really believe that we have to help um, you know our fellow humans all over the world, right? I view us as, as one. Uh, we are one species, after all. Although we're a mix of really an interesting mix of Denusian, Neanderthal, Homo sapiens, and, and probably a couple of other uh, hominids we don't even have names for. Um, but um, you know, we have to help them, and I think you know, help them meaning help them build their own technologies and build products to service their own markets. Right? I have this belief that you know, uh, capitalism or conscious capitalism is very powerful. So if we really look at how we can invest in in entrepreneurs and leaders in emerging markets and help them 
really build new economies within their own their own countries is very very powerful. And so, you know, I personally have been involved with investing in uh, entrepreneurs in Latin America, in Asia, and actually now most recently, thankfully, in Africa, because I've been looking for those opportunities to help support these these founders. Um, and so, I've personally been doing it now through sustainable food ventures. We're going to be doing, which by the way, if anyone is interested in investing, um, we would love to have everyone who cares about sustainable and, and good food um, and innovation um, uh, with us. We're on the AngelList platform, so uh, sustainable food ventures on AngelList. Uh, I'm reachable at ryan at sustainablefoods.com. Um, and so we're going to start investing these entrepreneurs as well. And so I've personally been able to invest in two, uh, two entrepreneurs. I'm looking at investing in a third entrepreneur in Africa. Um, the first one is Hakeem and his team at Veggie Victory. Um, Veggie Victory is Nigeria's first plant-based meat company. Really incredible. He's taught me actually a lot about Nigeria and the specific, you know, people in Nigeria eat chunks. They eat meat chunks. They don't, they don't, they're not that interested in hamburgers or sausages or whatever else. Um, and so, so you need a different product for a different market. Um, the Africa's first, um, clean meat company is actually based in South, in South Africa. Amzanzi Meats. Um, and uh, I've been able to invest in them as well as the first investor in Mzanzi Meats. Super excited about you know a clean meat company on the African continent that could serve the entire continent. And so they're focusing on uh, venison, so Springbok and some others uh, at the moment, which is really distinctive and interesting. Um, but but not only that, they could become the leader across Africa. You know, which is going to be you know by 2050. That's that's a continent that's going to have 2.5 billion people. Mm. Um, that is the future of humanity. And so, you know, the near-term future of humanity is Asia. Uh, the longer-term future of humanity is Africa. Mm. And so, you know, for those of us that are thinking long and thinking exponential, you know, the Africa of tomorrow of 2.5 billion people, 2.4 billion people, um, is not going to be the Africa of today, right? And so, so we have to think about how technologically advanced all of these countries and cities across Africa are going to be and how we can support the future there as well. And I think uh, I can think of no better way really of uh, ending on a visionary high note here in, in our conversation right now, Ryan. So uh, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Corporate Innovation Podcast presented by Singularity University and in collaboration with Singularity U Nordic. If you liked what you heard, please spread the news, give a review or share a link with friends and colleagues. If you have comments, questions or suggestions for great guests on the podcast, don't hesitate to write me at chris at sunordic.org. That is chris with a K at sunordic.org and sign up to the newsletter on www.sunordic.org slash podcast. See you on the next episode. <laughs>